Good morning, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. This morning, as part of Hispanic Heritage, we are remembering the other 9-11, the coup d'etat 50 years ago in Chile, 1973. By all accounts, Americans seem to know little or nothing about this coup d'etat and the roles of Henry Kissinger, the CIA, and the Nixon administration. And yet, these events too shook the world. The memory of the coup still burns in the memories of Chileans and millions of other Latin Americans. So we're happy to be able to bring back Professor Mike Gonzalez to talk with us about these events and the importance for us of memory and, and history, a task uh, of some urgency given here in this country, the ongoing and alas, all too successful campaign to bury, among other things, the history of slavery and its aftermath. Mike Gonzalez is Emeritus Professor of Latin American Studies at Glasgow University in Scotland. He has written widely on Latin American politics and culture, uh, also on Chile and on the pink tide in Latin America. Professor Gonzalez is author of The Ebb of the Pink Tide, The Last Drop, The Politics of Water, and Hugo Chavez, Socialist for the 21st Century. We are very happy to say a good morning, Professor Gonzalez. Hi, good morning. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, Mike, just uh, first a little about history and memory, including your own memories uh, and family history, and then your lifetime's work uncovering what we might call the hidden histories of Latin America. What about history and memory? You're an historian and a socialist. What is history for you? History is, a, is above all a lived thing. It's about lived experience and and about you know understanding not simply events, but also whatever it is that runs beneath these events, what consciousness, what aspirations, what dreams, what horrors, lie beneath it. Actually, um, my parents were both uh, exiles. My mother, an Austrian Jew, my father, uh, a Spaniard who, who left Spain at the end of the Spanish Civil War. So in a sense, those two histories are very, very immediate for me. And I, I've been recently, I'm writing a memoir about them both. And it, it's a very good, it's a very good example of what happens when you begin to rediscover or search for a history because one of the things I think very often certainly with my parents is that whatever they lived through they spoke about it very little and yet if I needed now in trying to understand them I have in a sense to try and unearth those things which affected them and touched them and about which you know I suppose they speak very little I don't know I think it's probably it's probably true of people who came out of Chile as well after the the horrors of the immediate situation. Maybe you bury things because they just are too painful, but there are some things which simply refuse to be buried. It's very interesting, for example, that um, uh, in recent, there's been a, a lot of controversy in Britain about immigration with an extreme right-wing Secretary of State, Home Secretary, who has been making a dreadful statements about, uh, well, about immigrants and the rest of it straightforwardly racist conducted racism conducted from the from the top of government and she made a statement about about immigrants 
and a very famous football commentator in Britain, Gary Lineker, who's very well liked, said in his radio broadcast, he said, it's funny, the things that she said was exactly what Hitler said and the fascists said in Austria, you know, in, in, in the in before in prior to the Second World War. And I thought that what was really nice was that the, what he said, you know, the BBC immediately tried to silence him, upon which all the sports commentators said they would refuse to commentate if, if uh, Lineker was sanctioned. So his comment, brief though it was, not from a professional, you know, said something enormously important. And of course, immediately there began a whole series of discussions in public, on radio, among friends, about, you know, what, what, what it meant to talk about fascism, about what it meant to be an immigrant, about why things happened, and so on. So these are not questions of the past. They're questions about the intervention in the past in our lives, in our present. That, I think, is how I would see, see history, you know, to understand those undercurrents and those forces work that made things happen. Thank you for that, Mike. So we are here today to talk about Chile. Mm -hmm. We are talking about something that happened 50 years ago in the in the 60s, the beginning of the 70s. So we have a, the, the president of Chile, Salvador Allende. Can you tell us who was he and how was he elected? What did he stand for? Salvador Allende was, uh, he proclaimed it often, he called it, he said he was a Marxist and um, he was a member of one of the two uh, major kind of uh, center-left parties in Chile because Chile had a very large socialist party unlike almost anywhere else in Latin America and he was a member of it and a leader of it. He was a medical doctor uh, and the other party was um, the Communist Party, which is, again, very significant in, in Chile and very a very important part of this story. Um, Allende was very popular, very well-liked, and he was also somebody who had been part of a series... I mean, in the electoral process in Chile meant that people tended to present the candidacies of, of, of uh, coalitions. And he was he was regularly, I think for on five occasions the candidate of coalitions which embraced the socialist and the communist parties. Um, he, I, I think I would describe him as a social democrat, but, uh, which is not to deny that his, his knowledge of Marxism, but he was a social democrat and he was somebody who had grown up in that tradition of coalition politics and above all a figure who legitimated the electoral process. Now, there's a there, there's an important thing to say about Chile. One of the things that people always said is that Chile had a long democratic tradition. Allende kind of represented that. And that's partly true. But it's also true that in the 1930s, Chile's so-called continuous democratic tradition was interrupted by a military dictatorship, Andri Banyas. So the 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 kind of democratic tradition was a part of Chilean politics, but the role of the military was also a part of its, of its political history. So um, anyway, he came, he, he headed the coalition, which was forged, the Popular Unity Coalition, which was forged in the 
mid-70s to, to present his candidacy to the presidency on, in November of 1970. Um, the coalition embraced a number of parties, but um, it was primarily a coalition of the Socialists and the Communist Party, plus two or three smaller parties, the Christian left, Mapu, um, uh, who, all of them are who, who coalesced around a program which um, Allende presented called the Chilean Road to Socialism, La Via Chilena, you know. We should talk in a minute about what the what the Via Chilena was, but I think it's important to to talk a little bit about the moment and what was happening because the you know the the Allende's victory, insofar as it was a victory in the in the presidential election, was a victory in the sense that he he won the largest number of votes, but the proportion. Of, of the vote that he won was 36%. So it gave him, you know, the presidency. But the other two candidates, it's important to say, one was, um, the other candidates were, one was um, uh, the candidate of the Christian Democratic Party, which had been influential and which had held the presidency in, in the previous six-year period. And the other was the candidate of the far-right National Party, and you know there wasn't an enormous amount of difference between the vote that each of them got. So Allende won, no question about it. And um, I, I think it's it's really significant. I think, although it's in a way a detail, that his program was presented to the Chilean people in music. Music was an incredibly important mobilizing instrument in Chile, and uh, the uh, a number of groups who became very World famous worldwide, including Inti Yemani and Kilapayun, who presented the politics of the coalition through the idiom of music. And there's a wonderful record which I have, a disc, you know, which I have and I treasure, which is called the Canto al Programa, which is, you know, the, the program sung. So it was a genuinely, it was a, a very vigorous, a very popular campaign driven by music. But it's also important to say when people ask, you know, well, why did, why, where did Allende come from? You know, as always, it, you know, we talk about an electoral victory. Yes, he won an electoral victory, but why did he win it? And the reason for that, and it's important to understand everything that happens after that. I think it's very important to understand that during the 60s, the 60s were a period, the later 60s in particular, in Chile were a period of immensely high levels of popular mobilization. There was a massive student movement, for example, pressing for the reform of education, which is, of course, dominated by right-wing ideas and accessible only to the wealthy. So a massive campaign, student campaign around education. The There were waves of strikes between 66, 67, 68, workers around issues of, of wages and so on in a country which had strong trade unions led by and large by the left. Um, and so they, the number of strike days, I don't have the number of, uh, to hand, but it was a very high level of strikes in, in, um, in, uh, in Chile. 
At the same time, you know, there's a very significant population of landless peasants or small farmers who by and large, you know, suffered always under the oppression and the abuse of power of the landowning class of Chile, which was very small and enormously powerful and whose voice was the National Party. So Allende didn't come to power in a vacuum. He came to he came to the presidency and to the electoral campaign um, in an atmosphere of fervor, of excitement, and of militancy. You know, and that's important because otherwise, you know, we end up talking about elections, and the elections were a manifestation, or at least the the result of the election was a manifestation of a, of a political atmosphere. You know and responded to it, and Allende was able to respond to it. So that's... This is KZYX, Mike. It's community radio here in Mendocino County. This is Loretta Rojas and Cal Winslow, and we're talking with Mike Gonzalez, professor emeritus at Glasgow University <laughs> in Scotland, and the author of many books and articles on Latin America. We're talking about the 19... 73 coup in Chile, a seminal event in the history of the Americas, all too often um, uh, forgotten. Mike, um, uh, can you just uh, forgive me for that and carry on? Of course. Um, so I think it's, it's important to remember that atmosphere that existed on the eve of the elections, to understand, one, the excitement and, and the significance that for ordinary people, for the working class, the election of Allende had. Yes, Allende was popular, but it, you know, it wasn't about him. It was about the fact that there was a shift, a real shift on the ground, which was the result of people's own collective actions. And so there was a great excitement about, 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 the, um, about the elections. And I, I mentioned that not just to give a background, but because it's important to remember that when we come to asking why the coup happened, you know, because we're talking about a country in which workers, youth were mobilized and a country in which historically, you know, a, a very small minority of the country had enjoyed the wealth of the country. Its major export was copper, uh, it, which was controlled until the late 60s by two American corporations, Kennecott and Anaconda, and um, which was the source of something like 90% of Chile's external earnings. So, uh, and the, you know, the, 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 the layer of powerful people in Chile were landowners, uh, but, and also agents of, of, uh, of foreign capital. So, um, 1970, so what about this, if, if I can go on just to say about the Chilean road, what was it? Um, it, it actually, if you read it now, it wasn't a revolutionary program by any manner of means. It was a program of social reform, social justice. It was about um, uh, the right to trade union organization. It was about the creation of, uh, an, a, of, a, of a democratic education system, of a democratic system of health. There were other issues that were very important. Another important, very important issue, for example, was housing, because there had been a certain amount of, of um, industrial development in Chile in the 60s, 
financed, well, I'll come back to that in a minute, but financed by um, what was called the, the revolution in, in, in freedom. But um, a certain amount of industrial development, which brought, and of urban development, which brought significant numbers of people from the poverty of the countryside towards the cities. But there was no housing program, there was no housing for them. So housing became a very critical, formative issue. And people gathered together in what were called the poblaciones, the shanties homes, the slum, the slum uh, communities and so on, coming from the countryside to find themselves, you know, with no housing. And they had, earlier on, there had been a, um, a famous um, confrontation in Puerto Montt in the south of Chile, precisely around the issue of housing, where the police and riot police were sent in against squatters and uh, killed a number of them. So all of these issues, these central issues about social justice, social rights, uh, and everything were at the center of this of the atmosphere that was being created in Chile. So, but but the problem, what was at the center, I suppose, of of, um, of of the Chilean road to socialism program was one question. Uh, uh, you know, when Allende came to power, copper, the copper industry was still in in. Uh, it was. It had been chillenized, as they called it, but it remained privatized. Um, the uh, you know the, the 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 wealthy were protected from excessive taxation. The you know the um, the powerful, the the political class, if you like, those who ruled dominated the parliament and the state machine. You know, had been there for a long time and represented the most. And right wing and the most reaction in the most conservative sectors of society. So it was a program of reform. At the center of it was the, were, I suppose, were raising the living standards of the majority population, creating the elements of a welfare state. And in order to do that, that most central of issues, which comes up again in, in the subsequent history of Latin America, the question of nationalizing, bringing the, the, the central elements of the economy, the, the mineral, the mining and oil industries under the control, under, under public control. So that was, that was a central issue. Now, Anaconda and Kennecott mobilized all their forces around the world to try and, to try and um, block Chile's ability to sell its copper. They tried to use their, their global power to block you know the changes in the in the economy, but um, you know this was the program. Now, it, at the time, a number of other countries, particularly driven by the Communist Party, were creating documents. We had one: the British Road to Socialism, a National Road to Socialism, which is about you know I suppose nationalisation of the most basic resources, control over those resources recognizing the rights of trade unions and so on. That was the center of the program. Um, now, the um, during the election, the, the ruling class, the right wing in Chile had divided. There'd been an internal dispute. The candidate of Christian democracy, the, which was essentially the right wing, uh, well, not the far right, but the, the center right, uh, the candidate of, the, of Christian democracy was in fact quite progressive, a man called Tomich. Uh, and and he, for example, approved of agrarian reform, which was the other major issue in a country with 
such a high proportion of landless peasants, the reform of the land, the redistribution of the land was fundamental. And the other element which would come to be strong was the, was the historic oppression of the indigenous communities of the south of, of, um, of Chile, in particular the Mapuches, who have come to, to occupy such an important role in recent events in Chile. So that was the, that was the atmosphere. I think it's it. We should recognize that Chile is a, you know is is kind of right on the edge of the world. It's you know it's very remote in a sense from the, from most of the world. And you know I knew about Chile because I was involved in Latin American studies and with people who had been in Chile and worked there. But Chile was not certainly not in the center of people's consciousness. What was happening in Chile? Well, actually, there was a, a right-wing journalist who later wrote speeches for Margaret Thatcher, who said um, he was asked to, to, to give an example of an unimportant news story. And he said, well, a, a headline for an unimportant news story would be a small earthquake in Chile. Nothing, he said, could be less significant than that. Well, actually, of course, he was very wrong. He said that in, in 1971. And in fact, Chile's political earthquake echoed far beyond the frontiers of Chile. It's a wonderful description of the of the moment when Allende was elected. I always like to tell the story, you mentioned it earlier, that he ran for the presidency a few times before and uh, he was defeated until 1970 when he won the election. So he used to joke and said, when I'll die, my my stone, you know, in my in my grave will read, here lays the, the future president of Chile, because <laughs> he was relentless. So, and I think that uh, really describes the social work and the social movement that brought him into the presidency after trying so many times to be president. Mm -hmm. So he selected in 1970, as you are describing, in this uh, country that needed all these changes. And um, then when he was in the office, did he follow up with all these uh, plans that he had? Well, the, the, the truth is, I, I said that he got, he got a majority, but nothing like a 50% majority of the votes. So that right, and I remember that the Congress has had to actually uh, validate the decision of uh, at the That's time right. they weren't they weren't like now people run again to see who will win between the two, but actually Congress uh, got together and they actually ratified his uh, victory. Yes, under protest, under protest, the Congress was completely dominated by the right, and they made all sorts of conditions and they limited it as far as they possibly could. They introduced, you know, financial controls and so on. So they made it as difficult as possible for him to assume power. But I think, you know, the, we, we need to think about power in two senses. One is, uh, did Allende control the state? No, he didn't. I mean, he, he was president and that gave him a personal uh, authority and so on. But, you know, we know that the presidency is one element of the power of the state and the, and the Congress and the parliament, for example, were dominated completely by the right, who used Congress as the base from which to mount almost immediately a political attack 
on on Allende from every direction. For example, the first steps in, in introducing economic legislation were resisted straight away. Um, so you have you have to, but on the other hand, there is another power, not exercising it yet, which is the power of the movement. It didn't go away. Its election encouraged that power, and um, uh, so. But very quickly, for example, very very early on, um, there were uh, the, the right, for example, blocked the the appointment of two ministers that he had wanted to bring to power. They placed uh, the 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 economics minister, put forward a first economic program. He was a communist. And he was, you know, he was essentially driven out by 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 the right. But if you like the 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 bourgeoisie in Chile was thrown. I think they never really expected Allende to be elected. They didn't know, you know, their people were in Congress, being obstreperous and difficult and placing obstacles in the way of things. But in the streets, there was a confident working class, and people felt that something was happening. You know, and you could see it in the factories, you could see it in the universities and so on. But it was a divided society in which the political conflict continued. And the the first moment in which the bourgeoisie was a bit thrown. But at the end of 1971, when some of the new legislation was beginning to be put through and some of the changes were happening, when the, the, the economy was for a brief time fairly stable, in 1971, Fidel Castro went to Chile to congratulate Allende on his victory. Now, it's very important to underline this because, one, because if there is one figure of hate for the, for the Latin American bourgeoisie, it's Fidel Castro. They loathe him. And he went and congratulated Allende. But on the other hand, there is also Fidel Castro, the representative of guerrilla warfare, of armed struggle, congratulating the victor in a parliamentary election. And was that a contradiction? Che Guevara had just been been murdered. You know, the the if you like, the armed struggle current really had been driven back by history. And essentially, fundamentally, that strategy had failed. So was this Castro celebrating a new strategy? Certainly felt like it. You know, and um, to congratulate Allende, you know, who was a good man and everything, but he was the representative of a parliamentary strategy towards power. And, and uh, you know, Castro was there. And that, I think, probably created a degree of confusion on the left. You know, how is it what Castro doing celebrating what is essentially, you know, reformism? Anyway, but his visit gave the opportunity for the first street demonstration carried out by the by the right they called the you know the the march of the empty pots you know when they marched through the streets waving empty saucepans complaining about shortages now there's a great film actually called machuca which i'd recommend um because what was happening really was first start if you look carefully at the march you know, it was noticeable that not only people from the elegant suburbs of, of Santiago were there, but so were their maids, who by and large, I think, were the people who were holding the saucepans, because they're probably the only ones who knew how to do it. You know, the saucepan was not a natural 
thing for a, a an upper middle class person in in Chile to be holding. You know, that would be the cook and the maid, and they were out in the shortages, which they were denouncing Allende for, were a deliberate strategy of uh, of um, uh, hiding and you know hiding resources. In other words, there was you know, scarcity was a strategy. So food, all sorts of things began to disappear from the shops. It began to be difficult to get them. What you see in Machuca, and what I saw later on in Venezuela, is that you know these shortages suddenly every everything disappears from the shops, but everything is available somewhere else in hidden warehouses, in the back room of shops and so on. But scarcity was a weapon used by the right. Uh, and there was resistance. Uh, but, uh, you know, that kind of, that that was the bourgeoisie taking to the streets again. So um, at the same time, of course, that created a situation in the economy of inflation. Prices rose, life became more difficult, shortages were real, even though the stocks were all hiding in warehouses in the in the middle class districts. So seventy two was the beginning of a, you know, of a of a conflict and a conflict which expressed itself, among other things, inside socialist party where there were splits, really between people who were, and and that included the communist party defending the you know the limits of reform. In other words, arguing for a politics of alliances. And in particular, alliances with elements of Christian democracy. And the Christian Democrats, despite the name, uh, are certainly not in any sense a left party or even, I think, a democratic party. And we know now, and actually I knew at the time, that they were sponsored as the, it was a kind of Marshall plan that the US had to try and encourage and strengthen Christian democracy as an alternative to further left alternatives. You know, they tried it in Chile, but it didn't stop Allende getting elected, but it didn't mean that the Christian Democrats were powerless. They weren't, and they had lots of support from outside, you know. And also, you know, the, the situation in the rest of Latin America, there was a, you know, a military dictatorship in, in Argentina and so on. So the situation was quite fraught, but there were debates inside that there were two conferences to debate the future inside the Socialist Party and what the alternatives that were emerging, right, and would later express themselves was really between a program of reform based on an on a on an agree a negotiated agreement with the center and with the right to reach the possibility, in other words, a program that could win the approval of the middle class, you know, that was on the one hand. And there was a kind of restlessness inside the Socialist Party, never expressed inside the Communist Party, inside the Socialist Party, pushing for a much more radical direction, for uh, more rights for trade unions, for um, uh, distribution, for example, food distribution became an issue and it was run in many ways by local committees called the hubs, you know. So there were there were things going on, which you looking on, you could see as the germs of a different kind of politics, and a different kind of power, you know, what was going on on the ground. Now, I mean, I'll, I'll say this later on again, but I think that 
to my mind, if you want to explain both the coup itself and its incredible barbarity and violence, then you have to look and say, the bourgeoisie in Chile, complacent, secure in its power, and so on. The, the spectacle of people of the of the working class and ordinary people in the street was frightening, you know, and it was frightening too for the lead, of course, the, the military leadership, which was operating together in joint uh, in in joint exercises with the U.S. But the the officers in the Chilean army come from the upper middle class. You know, and and you know there may there were occasionally people who were not, but the officer class is the ruling class, and they were pretty shocked and horrified by what they saw. So there's this, you know, growing sense of of resistance from below. Right, there is a, a growing sense, a growing kind of rage and organization among the bourgeoisie, and. Among and this is my view among the leadership of the working class among the popular unity coalition, what you see is hesitation, vacillation, a fear, if you like, of violence or of, of or of confrontation, and we would see that very soon, and that came in. I mean, the really the turning point in Chile is in October of 1972. Uh, Mike, before before we go there and continue yeah. the story, I want to just greet our listeners again here and uh, remind them that they are listening to Hispanic Heritage Month series here, our own celebration with Cal Winslow and Loreto Rojas. Um, remember in the coup d'etat in Chile in 1973 and uh, the effect that had in the region at large And this morning we are talking with, and in Chile in particular, sorry. And we are today here listening to Mike Gonzalez, professor of history of modern Latin America. And he is a professor emeritus of Glasgow University in Scotland. And we are very pleased to have you here explaining us to Chile. And um, we are already in the half of the hour or our program. So I just want to keep an eye in the in the time because we... I know we can go in detail about all this. So the intervention uh, here, you, you were mentioning that uh, uh, Allende was elected in 1970 and he started trying to um, run the government with a, a tremendous opposition of the um, Congress and other politicians and also the fear of the upper class and middle class of the populace of the uh, people that were just taking the streets and being really bubbling and uh, excited about having an opportunity to better the circumstances. So what was that happened in the 1972 that changed dramatically the next year that will, will end with the coup in uh, September 11, 1973? I think the, I mean, the, the critical event is the decision by the lorry owners, the camioneros, to go on strike. Now, bear in mind that Chile is a long, thin country where most of it, 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 its goods and so on are transported by road. So the lorry owners are a powerful group. 
and um, they were, they had an organization which was led by an, an openly fascist man called Luis Villarín, Villarín who was a member of a, of a far-right organization called Fatherland and Freedom, Patria y Libertad. And they, but obviously they didn't do it on their own. They did it with the support uh, and encouragement of uh, sections of the bourgeoisie and so on. In other words, to bring the, to, to bring Allende's government down. That was clearly the, the purpose. And so they went on strike. They gathered all their lorries in park car, lorry parks, you know, and took out bits of the engine and closed them over. So this was, in a sense, a declaration of war, really, by the right. They were now ready to 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 mount an assault on the Allende government. What's critical for me, I mean, there's so much to say about it, but what is critical is really the response to that. Because the right went on strike. It wasn't just the lorry owners. They were supported by, for example, doctors. You know, there were, you know, most doctors struck as well. There were strikes in other sectors. You know, the the right moved to bring down the Allende government. Why did they choose that movement? Well, for two different reasons. I think because there was there were contradictions inside uh, Allende's government, and there also there was movement on the ground. And clearly, they were the the push towards trying to create, you know, um, change and bring about changes and realize some of the promises of the Chilean road was going on and the right decided to mobilize. Now, you know, they had the su support in the army and so on uh, and, and in the armed forces uh, and from the landowners who were in their turn fighting uh, occupations of land by, by peasants and by small farmers and so on and sending, you know, often sending troops against them. The strike ended fundamentally because it failed. And it failed because of a mass mobilization of people who, at all sorts of levels, they didn't, they, you know, they took on the lorry owners, but they also created alternative mode, means of transport and freight. You know, they go into the carry paths, other people, volunteers arrived and drove the lorries. You know, they changed, they put back the bit, I'm sorry, I'm not very good on engines, but they put back the bits of the engines that had been removed. And there was a mass mobilization. And essentially, you know, the lorry owner strike was to all intents and, purpose, and purposes defeated. Now, but that created a sense of the mounting political conflict in Chile. And then uh, in, you know, and it went on and the lorry owners would once again take to the streets in June, July of 1973, in what they hoped would be the definitive act of destruction of the Allende government. They took their lorries again. But I think the important thing is that during the course of those months, new organizations began to grow up. They were called the Cordones, which just means a, a, you know, a, a coordinating committee. But in the factories, workers would work with people in the farms, with local, lo with local uh, community organizations to try and keep things going to keep production going, to keep the supply of goods going, and so on. So in a way, the initiative had, was passing down to you know, mobilizations and organizations on the ground. So now you could, you know, by the beginning of 1973, you could say, you could point to two centers 
from which power was emanating. There was the state with Allende in its head, trying to act, but trying to act in a conciliatory way all the time. And on the other hand, against the mobilizations of the right, against the destruction mounted by the right, the mobilization of people on the ground. And that was extraordinary. And I suspect that we have to understand that for the Chilean bourgeoisie, that was frightening. You know, the, the nice passive workers who didn't do anything suddenly were, to, you know, were taking control in their own areas and building new kinds of organization, which is, for me, the Chilean experience is that. It is two experiences, the experience of popular mobilization from below and the experience of the extreme brutality of a bourgeoisie under threat because they felt threatened. You know, they were worried and they acted with brutality and violence. But there are things we have to explain, very difficult things. I mean, for example, as the conflict began to develop in um, in in uh, Chile, and as the tank regiment, the experiment in the, the attempted a coup in June of 73 by a tank regiment, which failed, but it was just a rehearsal, really, um, Allende turned to uh, the army and instead of you know finding ways of supporting these mass mobilizations these were after all his electors you know the people who had put him in power he turned to Augusto Pinochet who was already known as somebody who had repressed workers during a minor strike to and brought him into the cabinet to re-establish public order now, the disturbing thing about that was that Pinochet was recommended by the head of the armed forces, the commander in chief of the armed forces in Chile, who was known as a constitutionalist and was a member of the Socialist Party. But it seems that military loyalty, you know, was more important than his political loyalty. And perhaps resigned, Pinochet came to power. And the mobilizations of the right began to be known. There are some people in Britain who were members of the Air Force, rank and file Air Force people, who and, and, and rank and file members of the Navy, who wrote to Allende and said, there's a coup underway. There's a coup being prepared. It has to be stopped. They announced it publicly. And Allende thanked them for their patriotism and left them under the control of the armed forces. So the coup was being prepared. Now, we we know the events, the horror of it, the arrival of Pinochet, but why did it happen? Well, partly it happened because, you know, the, of, of, if you know, because the class struggle was reaching a new kind of temperature. But there was another reason too, and that was that they were in waiting, a group of people who saw in Chile an ideal laboratory for new ideas of privatization against public ownership, which we now know so well and so familiar with, which is neoliberalism. It's, it's an ideologue with a man called Milton Freeman in Chicago, who gathered around him a group of people in Chile who would be come to be called the Chicago Boys. That is the people who then implemented the extreme privatization measures that, that Pinochet introduced. So in a sense, Chile was both a, a warning for the right of the possibility 
of mobilization of working people, but also an ideal experimental laboratory for these new ideas as soon as the army took power. Because the circumstances for neoliberalism necessarily had to be the suppression of well, we know what, what it meant. It meant the end of trade unionism, the suppression of trade unionism, the end of the end of essentially the destruction of the public sector, the privatization of the economy, and repression to go with it. And that's what happened. Now, you know, around the world that echoed. People were horrified. And I think they were horrified in a way because Allende seemed a much more recognizable figure. The Europeans and North Americans, you know, a, a, a kind of standard reformist politician, you know, and a very nice man. And then suddenly here he was being, he and his being, you know, murdered and cut to pieces by, by, by the, by the Chilean army. And people were horrified. I know here, for example, I live in Glasgow in Scotland and we, um, we did a street play wearing, big papier mache heads, you know, Nixon, Heath and Pinochet. And we did street theatre to try and tell people what was going on. And the reaction was very sympathetic. People were very interested. The, you know, the the events that we, that everybody organised drew a lot of interest here and, and elsewhere. But so what were we doing? We were demonstrating against the, against the, the military, you know, destruction and oppression, repression against a, a, a mass movement. But um, Chile had lots of different meanings for different people. And the most significant conclusion that was drawn from it was drawn in Italy by the head of the Communist Party in Italy, Enrico Berlinguer, who in a speech to his party announced the creation of something called the Historic Compromise. That is, that uh, social democrats could only go as far as their allies to their right would allow them to go. So Chile then became, you know, something else again, not just a, you know, um, um, an example of the power and the collective power of ordinary people in organizing themselves, not only a celebration of a victory for ordinary people, for a society in which people sang their uh, political programs. Instead, the historic compromise was his interpretation of what had happened in Chile. So the argument about Chile then became between those two views. Does Chile show us what it's possible for ordinary people to do when they build their own organizations, use their collective strength? Or does Chile show us that you can only ever go so far as you'll be allowed to go by the by the right and by the system? You know? And um and then what followed, of course, was the was the extraordinary brutality of it all. But Let's be clear, you know, people said, well, it was the CIA and, you know, it was the U.S. state. I had big arguments with people about that. Of course, the CIA people were involved. The CIA and the State Department will always support any initiative of the right against against a popular movement. That goes without saying. But what's important about it was that the, this was a movement supported by the bourgeoisie and a method of taking power to introduce neoliberalism, 
which would then be immediately imitated in Argentina and Uruguay as well. It was a strategy, not the particular nasty, vicious brutality of the Chilean military, but a strategy, a global strategy, which had no compunction about using extreme violence and torture in order to carry its policies through. Where this brutality comes from, why the need of exterminate, kill, disappear thousands of people? I mean, just to be clear for people that don't know this part of the history of Chile is that uh, right immediately after the coup, this uh, Caravana de la Muerte, you know, the, the death caravan, mm -hmm. went, was sent north of Chile and they went in helicopters, city after city, and they uh, killed and disappeared everybody that was in a position of leadership. So they will go to a town and, and call the director of the hospital, the, uh, the mayor of the town, the governor, if it was one, and then all the union leaders and uh, the teachers of university. And they would just, you know, shoot them death, pile them, the bodies up and use dynamite to disappear them then they will go to the next town and so on. And and these uh, type of things were actually happened, they happened for many years in Chile, for 10, 12, 14 years. I mean, one of the martyrs that we still remember is Hekar Negman, who was actually killed in September 4th, 1989. So this brutality lingered. How can an army turn around against their people so readily and so... Effectively, I suppose, because the because the army is not neutral. It's not a neutral institution. It serves the interests of a ruling class, and when it's instructed, I mean, and it's acting in terms of those interests. Why, why, why the the horror of this repression? Well, partly to get rid of the leaderships, but beyond that, to terrify, to terrorize. Right, a whole population, if possible, as in the case of of Chile, for nearly one whole generation. Argentina was the same. Argentina after Chile, in Argentina, um, you know, uh, the same thing happened. The Caravanas de la Muerte were not the same thing. It was the Ford Falcons that floated around the streets of the city, containing you know um, uh, secret police. And it, it, the most effective weapon is the fear it placed in the hearts of people who were not leading, the fear it placed in the hearts of people that they would be next because there was no rhyme or reason, no rationality to this. And so everybody became frightened, not only frightened for themselves, they frightened for themselves, but also your friendships, your, your, your relationship with your neighbor could be reason enough to expose you to torture and murder. You know, I went to the incredible museum of, of, of the torture center, the Mechanics Institute in Buenos Aires, and it's, it's terrifying. But what is more terrifying is not the extreme violence of these individual people, they're instruments, and they're instruments of people who are somewhere else making very respectable speeches in parliaments and you know, government institutions and wearing ties and behaving very well. But they're the people who instruct the murderers to murder. You know, they're the people whose interests 
require that level of violence in order to be protected, you know, because it was the CEOs of the global multinationals who were anxious that their profit-making minerals, mining companies, oil companies were not put at risk by popular mobilization, you know. So let's be clear whether, you know, whether where the source of all this lies. And I think maybe in, in some way, Chile represents that in the clearest, clearest form. Um, and, um, and it brings us back to memory. And that is, you know, never to forget that nobody, nobody can be uh, immune from being denounced. Nobody can escape because of the passage of time. If you are, if you have been a part of this system, and I think it's important that we talk about a system and not, you know, a collection of individual actions, a system which is capable of enslaving millions of human beings, capable of enacting, arming, you know, the most brutal regimes, but. You know, it's not just for the sheer pleasure of it, it's to defend their interests. When the when the coup happened, we had lots of you know meetings and discussions. And um one thing that people said, this refers back to something uh that's in the book you mentioned that that I did uh, I and a colleague edited called Arms and the People. And it comes up every time. Well, the rank and file of the army are ordinary people. There are many indigenous people, working class people, peasants in the army. Why didn't they fight against their oppressors? You know, in order to put, in a sense, to put the responsibility on the weakest members of the class. And we have big arguments about that. And I would say, look, you know, you cannot say in fact, there is there's very strong rumors that there was one group of soldiers who did refuse to take our bombs and who were shot there and then. You know, the institution of the army is what it is. It's a command structure. It exists to use in the instruments of terror. You can't ask, you know, a 19-year-old recruit to take on the army unless, and the only exception situation in which has happened, unless there is a living movement of their class in the streets which can take on the armies and which can, which can, in a sense, give them a place of safety. And I think it's important for us always to recognize who is in the shadows behind the people who are doing the violence. You know, who is there approving it? Absolutely. And, and actually, after the... So Pinochet was in the power for 17 years and um yeah. and then democracy was uh, restituted in Chile nevertheless that's a different story I, I guess we'll have to touch another time because we are almost out of time mm -hmm. um but uh, listeners you're listening to our interview with Mike Gonzalez talking today about the other September 11 this was September 11, 1973, in the coup in Chile. Uh, I don't know, Carl, if you want to say something. We have just three minutes left, or you want to ask something to Mike for the last minutes. Well, thank you very much, as usual, uh, Mike. I wondered if you might suggest something uh, that our listeners could uh, read to follow up uh, 
on this discussion, particularly anything that you've uh, written, we'd like to uh, to be able to look at that or uh, something else that you think uh, would be worthwhile. Um, and also, um, you mentioned uh, a film, did you? And is it yeah. possible to see that film? Yes, I'll, uh, let, I, I think there are there are two films. One is Machuca, which is a very tender, beautiful film. Okay, by um, oh God, I've forgotten the director's name. Anyway, Machuca. Andres Andres Wood. Andres Wood. The other is the film made by probably Chile's outstanding film director Patricio Guzman, who made a film called The Battle for Chile, La Batalla de Chile. Um, and then more recently made a film about Allende, which is quite honest and very moving and very, very well made. And the other thing is, well, if you want to feel the spirit of, of, of that movement, there's the music, you know, and the music is the expression of, 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 of a feeling from below. Inti Imani, Kilapayun, the singers, uh, a singer that I'm, I think is very important called Patricio, Patricio Mans recently died. All of these are the cultural expressions of a world in which people were sensing a possibility of change, you know. Uh, and above all, I think, to remember what the consequences of historic compromises really were and not be fooled again, you know. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Mike. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. We'll have another program tomorrow at the same time and another one after that, the day after, for a three-program series. 